feeling good about ourselves and an emotional high necessarily about it, but we would walk away with a deeper knowledge of who you are and a deeper knowledge of, of who we are, the reality of who we are, to God, that we would walk out in, in just awe and wonder and worship of the, just the grace and the mercy that you pour out on us in Christ Jesus. And we don't deserve it, and yet you give it to us freely and pour it to your hands, God. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. We have started off on a long journey through just three chapters in the book of Romans, and uh, we're going to take a big swath of it today again. But it's really just re, uh, restating what it is that God seeks to do with us when we're His. There's a distinction to everybody who knows who Christ is. And that one main distinction should be holiness. If you know Jesus, you should exemplify, or at least in some way, you should communicate an air of a separated life to Jesus. Your life should be different than all the others that that other person may know, unless they're like you too and they know Jesus also. Christians are supposed to be different. They're not supposed to be different because they choose to act different to gain God's favor. But they are different because that which is in them, namely the Holy Spirit, is transforming them so that they are different and they act different because they have salvation. Our life should communicate the reality of a risen Savior. So we're going to be going through Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 17. If you have that in your Bibles, let's stand for the reading of the Word of God then. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 17. I'm just kind of going to read casually through. For those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. 
I think that's pretty clear. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, so in in light of all that's been said, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. This is your word that you have preserved. And in all the attempts of vain human uh, atrocities trying to purge it from the earth, you have preserved it. And God, we stand in awe of you. And as you reveal yourself through your word, God, we can have no truth of you apart from your word. We can have no truth about who we are apart from your word. God, we are a people of the book because we are a people born again of the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So, Lord, let us pay attention to what this has to say in this admonition and understand the emphases that you've called us to be separate, to be holy, to live by the Spirit of God. Lord, it's our birthright because of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Called this message, the contrast between the spirit and the flesh, or the saved and the unsaved. Because that's what we're talking about. Now, clearly, according to verse 12 of chapter 8, Paul is talking to the believers. But he has made a distinction in verse 5 about those who live the natural life of the unregenerate. And you know what I mean by unregenerate. Those who do not know Christ are unregenerate. Those who know Christ are regenerate. Those who know Christ are saved. Those who do not know Christ are not saved. Or, as we go back to what the Scripture terms are using, those who know Christ are in the Spirit, capital S, because they're born again of the Spirit. Those who are of the flesh are the unsaved. They do not have the Spirit. And that's what we're talking about then. So the contrast, what it, what it looks like when stacked up against the other is what we're looking at here. The contrast between the Spirit and the flesh, the saved and the unsaved. And you may say, why are you talking about that today? Why have you been talking about it for 11 messages long? Okay, why? And I would say because this answer has not give way, or this, this, this problem has not yet been given a solution. The problem is a failure of 21st century Western Christians, all European, Western, all Western nations, 
to understand and apply the doctrine of sanctification to personal holiness in their everyday lives. We've separated sanctification from justification, and we should never have done that. Sanctification is the proof of justification. Because if you've been justified before God, you're going to show in your life a distinct new, new, uh, new nature, a new man. Okay? So because this has been overlooked, not stressed, the result is a weak and lethargic church with no power, no passion, and an ever-increasing conformity to the world around them, so much so that we see entire denominations falling like flies in winter. And you and I know what that's like. But they are falling. The latest is a, is a certain section of the Mennonite church to cave to the modern worldview. And you think, how does that match? I don't even know. It... It is a burden for me. And, and it's not just for me. It's a burden for every one of us who love Jesus. To see how he is misrepresented. Not by the world. They're just doing what they've always done. But by those who profess his name. Robert Mounts in his commentary on the book of Romans says... People's decisions about how they intend to live determines how they think about things. Think about that. Something drives you. You have a worldview. You have a, you have a code of ethics. Where do you get it from? Moral choice precedes and determines intellectual orientation. Moral that, that that moral decision that you make precedes or comes before and determines the intellectual decision that you're operating under. That's why he says ethical decision more often than misguided reason lies at the heart of error. Er, ethical decision. So where do you get your ethics from? If something is wrong to you, why is it wrong? If something is right to you, why is it right? How do you take a look at some of these very uh, uh, thorny issues in our culture? About which way to proceed? What, when you're at work and you've been given a task or you work with a team of people. And you're there as a believer how do you draw your boundaries so that you don't go past what Christ has allowed for you as a representative of who he is? Do you actually even ask the question? Maybe you're coming up with a solution in a family to make a decision. You have a family of saved and unsaved how is the family as a whole going to approach the issue? What foundation are they going to use to come to this decision? And so oftentimes then, 
if you're in Christ, your, your view of the world, right, is going to come into direct conflict with the world's view of itself. It better. And see, that's the problem that we're not seeing today. Is that many, many, many churches are beginning to reason like the world. Those who choose to live according to their sinful nature set their mind and heart on what that nature desires and that's going to come out in their ethical and moral decisions. The other way to live is to place oneself under the control of the Spirit. In this case, people focus their interest on the things of the Spirit. So I'm approaching a problem. I have been called in maybe to give advice on when, I, when should I pull someone off life support. When they're asking, they're asking me for whatever reason. Not me as a parent. This is an analogy. I'm just a Christian. I've been asked to come in and, and the family wants to know when should they terminate the switch that's keeping the other family member alive. How are you going to answer that? How far should you go when the government says you do this or else? And all of this comes from your walk with God. From your having nourished your life upon the truths of Scripture. I hope you have time. I look at some of the young ones that are just now cutting their teeth on the Word. And I've been studying it for a long time. And some of you have been studying it a lot longer than I have. You've, I've had a long time to digest, to articulate, to appropriate truth of this book into my soul. I've had a long time. Some of you don't have that much time. That's why... We have to remember, in all of these things, we, we don't do it alone. You have to remember, the beauty of knowing Jesus is that you have a new resident in you. Right? You're not called on to make these decisions in a vacuum. You take Jesus wherever you go. That's why you know, today is, is evangelism outreach. And I just happen to be one that's completely transparent and say that I never get too froggy excited about it. Okay? But I am, when I get going, very joyful to be there. And the thing that I have to keep remembering over and over again, because I try to anticipate all the questions that I may be asked, and I can't come up with the answers in my head right now. But it's amazing, and everyone that goes out can attest to this. In that moment, in that nanosecond of the question, God gives you what to say. And the only time you're going to get that answer is when you're out there facing it head on. So when, I, when we go, we remember God goes with us. The Holy Spirit is in us, is greater than that that was in the world. And He goes before us and He goes in us. And when we go to speak, He, he supplies. The Christian life then is not a solo life. It's a life lived with God. So let's look at the mindset then of the flesh, because that's what we're talking about, is it how I view, how I approach life. Verses 5 through 8 then. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That makes reasonable sense. wonder what the word minds means. Hmm, so I marked it. For to be carnally minded, there it is again, is death, but to be spiritually minded, and again, is life and peace. 
Because the carnal mind is enmity. Enmity. Your Bible may not say enmity. It'll be something like conflict or enemy. But it's against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why does he use the word mind so much? These are questions you have to ask when you read your, read your Bible. Well, the word minds in the Greek is from the word phroneo. And it includes a person's affections and will. You know, your, your, your volition. As well as his reasoning. In other words, phroneo refers not simply to intellectual activity, but also to direction and purpose of heart. So your mind... Your will, your volition. For example, there were jalapeno poppers in the kitchen today. I saw them. I had a very strong volition to have two. I broke through all barriers. Nothing stood in my way. I did not ask for permission. I just took and, and, and was very satisfied My mind was made up the moment I saw it. You see? What about in my actions with God? What about the way I live with my relationships with people? What about when no one else is looking and I'm there by myself? And I'm frustrated all on my own. Yes, I can be. I am one who can be very frustrated by myself. Okay. My mind has to engage. My mind must be ready to respond with the act and volition, not of my flesh, but of the Holy Spirit that I yield to. So therefore, I pray every morning now, Lord, before I even get up, can I just say activate? Just the filter is on. Show yourself in my life today. Make little of me because I know me, and I won't do so good. So mind, phroneo, this ability of reason, my intellectual activity, my direction and my purpose of heart. But there's also this word enmity. And I like saying this one in the Greek. It's fun. Ekthra. Ekthra, ekthra. Read all about it. Okay? That's, what, that's how I remember it. It's ekthra. But this is actually a bad word. It's, it's a state of deep-seated ill will or hostility. Now notice back up where it says, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Yes, that's good. But because the carnal mind, the natural unregenerate mind, is actually hostile toward God. It's not subject. It's, uh, it doesn't respect the law of God. It doesn't want anything to do with it so that it can please itself. So then you have a very big contrast between the saved and the unsaved. So in contrast to the spirit, then the flesh manifests itself with all the earthly motivations and appetites that come from a corrupted natural mind. That's why they get so mad when we put our foot down against things like abortion or homosexuality or Financial corruption or political corruption or lying or all of those things. They hate it because they don't understand why we just can't go along. We can't because we literally can't. You see, we can't because 
The Holy Spirit in us will not allow us to. He won't allow. Thank God for that. It's a built-in governor. Okay. I had an 89 Ford. And it had a six-cylinder in it like I kind of have now. Except I wish I had that one because it had an air conditioner. But anyway. And, and I would get it up around 90 and then it would go. It would just be headed up and then it just drop off because the governor. I didn't know what was happening. I asked dad, what's wrong with it? He goes, there's a governor. I said, where's the governor? Because I'm thinking of a governor. I didn't know until he ex- explained to me that it's a mechanism in the engine that literally acts like a governor. He was very strict too. Never would let me go over 90. Which is probably good. Charles Cranfield is a notable uh, English theologian. He said that in the verse in Romans 8, 5. Tatinus frenein. And when freneo comes back to our intellectual activity. Means to be of someone's mind. To be on someone's side. So when he says uh, those those who allow the direction of their lives to be determined by the flesh are actually taking the flesh's side. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Sometimes as Christians, we, we sin. Often. And, and when, we, when we take the flesh's side, we literally are taking its side. And that's why the conviction is so strong. That's why when we sin, we have this thing. You'll hear a Christian say, I'm convicted of my sin. And then we're like, what is that? Uh, there's an older word. I have contrition. Or, I feel really bad. I feel like the, there, is a, there is a spiritual vacuum within my soul that is leaving behind the thickest darkness that only God and His light can dispel because of my sin. Well, that's because you've created, you committed treason against your king. And you love your king. You love him. And it grieves you that you've grieved him because he's grieved with you. It's a relationship of love. And you want restoration, so what do you do? You repent. You go in the back room. You go back into the back tool cabinet. You go wherever you have to go. You crawl inside the deep freeze if you need to. But you're going to get alone with God and say, Take it away. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to grieve you. Come back. We don't do it to be saved again. We do it to restore that that closeness, that peace. I I don't want to side with my flesh. Do you? But every time we sin, we do. That's what tatenos for name means. While those who allow the spirit to determine the direction of their lives are taking the spirit side in contrast. I got to tell myself. I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to. Because I always have. So there's so much traffic on these roads today. And there's so much construction, Right? So there we are at the light, fixing to turn right uh, over to, uh, to go across the bridge. There's a long line, you know. And I'm just waiting in line, just minding my own business. There's cars in front of me, and there's a car behind me. Well, the car in front of me has yet gone, has just barely started to move, and the person behind me slams on their horn. You know, 
So my first instinct was to honk back. Now, I'm honking forward. <laughs> now that I think about it, that's probably... See, it's a whole chain reaction of sin is what it is. But my daughter, she said, don't let something so petty cause you to, to react like that. And I thought, I am the dad. Why should... But what, what got me was, it, it is petty. And then I thought, oh, how I would love to come to the point soon where things like that didn't even register. Don't you, Jeff? Don't you wish that too? Because it's true, it was petty. And she didn't even know I was honking at her because I don't have a honk in my bumper. Okay? Honk. Something as simple as a honk then can grieve the spirit. I want to side with the spirit all the time. All the time. And so we talked last week about what happens when we don't. We have this war going on. But oh, he was with us and us greater and he keeps pushing us along. So now I have a list, by the way, that I have in my, in my soul. It's a bulletin board. Do not allow people honking behind you to cause you to honk forward. <laughs> Put that on the list. It's with a lot of other stuff that's on the list. James 4 and verse 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? That ho- There's that word hostility again. Friendship with the world is enmity. Being an enemy with God. Do you not know that? He's asking, do you not know? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's not a choice. I don't want to be a friend of the world. And I don't want to side with the world. What I want... I want to please God. And you want to please God. And we have this problem, see, of this... Sin inside of us that sometimes comes up out of nowhere. But the the scripture gives us the answer here. The spirit enables us to walk in victory. Let's continue here. The approach to life then that is controlled by the lower nature is hostile to God. The old nature is antagonistic to all that God is and stands for. That's why if you have someone says, I'm a Christian, but they stand for everything that is against God, they're lying. Okay? The old nature, it refuses to submit itself to the law of God. In fact, it cannot. By nature, it stands over against the nature of God. Again, this was from Robert Mounts. I don't want to stand against the nature of God. Do you? This is a serious affair. Look at verse 9 through 11. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. But you. So he's talking about this dead. What's dead in you as a Christian. But if you don't know Christ and you're here, I want to tell you that's you. You are the ugly, fleshy, worldly enemy of God you have corruption 
is all you want. You have a settled indifference to the holiness of God. You don't care. I pray that God in His mercy would strike your soul with fear and trembling. So that you too can come to Christ and know what it's like to have that old baggage taken far away and to be set free and to not fear that that homecoming day when you get to go to glory. Oh yeah, I love talking about heaven. But you are not in the flesh, Christian, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if indeed He does, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20. Jesus makes a pointed note on if indeed whether or not the Spirit of God dwells in you. How will you know? How how do you know? Well, here's how. Jesus is speaking about false prophets, of course, but the same lesson applies. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Imagine a sheep outfit on on a wolf. Imagine that. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They look like sheep, but they're not. You will know them, he says, by their fruit. So how would we spot them? You'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by that which they produce innately from their character. Do men gather, gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, no. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. That's simple enough. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. And Jesus is simply making a simple statement. If someone claims to know God, the fruit of their life is going to show the distinct characteristics and nature of their heavenly father. And the ever indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be backed by the word with which they have a compulsory appetite to ingest. If you don't have those things. Or if you try to say that God is happy with you in your sin. Now you're actually profaning his name. Which is holy. And you know God killed for that in the Old Testament. Oh, yes. Sheeps are wolves in sheep's clothing. You'll know them by their fruits. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And First John talks about that. If, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And that goes back to Romans chapter 6, 8. We have uh, the Novengers are uh, Keith's mama is passing away as we speak. But she is the devout, loving Christian woman. And she is ready to go home. I have a friend in Oklahoma who's 96. Miss Sadie. Uh, 
she is also passing away too. And she is a loving, kind Christian woman who has done exceedingly well. And she just wants to go home. The hope within us is so extreme that death, while I think we would all admit seems a bit uncomfortable, is simply the way to get there. And we can't wait to be unclothed so we can be future clothed. I just can't help but smile when I read these passages. You see, the Christian life is a life of victory. But not because of you. Thank the Lord it's not because of me. It's because of Jesus. Now let's look at Romans 12 through 17. The mindset of the Spirit. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I like that emphatic declaration. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And that's true. If you're led by the Spirit of God, you are. Because if you're not, you can't. But notice verse 15 for those of you who maybe have a weak constitution. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You didn't get fear from God. But you received, notice the capital S, spirit of adoption. By whom you cry out, Abba, Father. Therefore the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I cannot deny him. Because he will never deny me. But I also love the scripture that says, even when I am not faithful, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. But if I'm a child, then I'm an heir, and I'm, a, I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. If I suffer with him, I know I'll be glorified with him. You see, I've entered in as a Christian to his sufferings, and it may come a day, and I've thought about it often Lord, what will be my end? I pray if it can be spent. If I have to face that moment. Let it be faced that brings you the most glory. I only get to do it once. I got one round in that barrel. I want it to count. Give me the strength to make it count. You're not debtors anymore to the flesh. He's died, remember? The old man is gone. The new has come. You're no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. Now glorify God in your body. That means in your conduct. In your speech. Today we had a very short but lively discussion about the difference between complaining and observation. Okay. And of course Travis and his wittiness. He's the new John Haywood. He regurgitates everything everyone else has said. So he's kind of like a... But I think he would quote... I already forgot who it was. What was it? Piet Theodore Roosevelt. That if you complain without having a solution, you're just whining. <laughs> okay? I, I have a tendency to complain sometimes. But then I got to thinking, well, Polly, what if I'm just observing and stating a fact? God knows. Right? 
But I know this, that regardless of what I may have to go through, alone or with people, Jesus is faithful to me. Why is that? Why is He faithful to you who know Christ? Because you are in Him. You're no longer your own. You are a slave. I'm a slave of God. To wrap this up, I want to give you a little bit on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not only instrumental in making us God's children. This is from uh, Douglas Moo. The Holy Spirit is not only instrumental in making us God's children. He also makes us aware that we are God's children. I find in many discussions with people who say, I'm doubting my salvation. I'm really struggling with assurance. And they just struggle and they struggle and they struggle with their assurance. And they're so worried about their assurance. In fact, they are so concerned about their assurance, about displeasing God and not being saved, that maybe they're not, that they love God. They're so concerned about their assurance that they give themselves away that they're very well assured. Because I say to them, you have to understand something. If, if you're not born again, you don't care about assurance. The scripture just said so. That old nature is not subject to the law of God. You don't, it doesn't register. I don't talk about tofu. It doesn't exist to me. It's some paste made out of soybeans and that's all I need to know. I don't even worry of it. But you talk about, man, you talk about some real good beef over a slow fire of hickory. I like hickory with a nice developed smoke ring percolating on its own juices with a nice bark on it. I'm all over that. Who's hungry? But you see, I'm concerned about that which is in my soul. And I am assured of my walk with God because I can't help but to be. And, and, and so those doubts that come if you're not assured of your salvation. I just want you to know. Yes. If you're not saved, God's going to be faithful to tell you so under no uncertain terms. But a lot of you, you just need to rejoice. That the spirit in you is screaming you're mine. So, he makes us aware. And while the first occurrence then of the word pneuma, which is where we get spirit, denotes the Holy Spirit, in verse 16, it's modified by our, and it's little s. And this is the only time in Romans chapter 8 that the lowercase spirit is used, because the rest of the times, it's all carried by what he does and who he is in the power of his nature. His life in us. We're nothing. We're only anything because of who He is. Now lastly, and if you could pay attention to here, I want to, I want to address an issue in verse 15. It says, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit, capital S of course, pneuma, of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now I, I've heard over the years people pray, and I am not being dogmatic here, so let me just get it out. Over the years, uh, 
Especially when I came out west here, I would hear people pray and they would refer to God as Daddy. And they would pray Daddy this and Daddy that. And, and you know, I, at first I thought, what, you know, why is that? And I, and I heard that, that Abba is just, if it's translated, it simply means Daddy. That is entirely not true. It's not true. I want to deal with this. Well, this is from a, uh, a man named Murray Harris, who's a Hebrew scholar. Uh, and he says... We are sometimes told that the Aramaic word Abba in Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6 indicate that we are to address God the Father as Daddy, as an expression of reverential relational intimacy. And he says this is not the case. That is, Abba was not a childish term of the nursery comparable to Daddy. It was a polite and serious term regularly used by adult sons and daughters when addressing their father. Ideas of simplicity, intimacy, security, and affection attach to this household word of childlike trust and obedience. So to bring out the sense of warm and trusting intimacy that belongs to the word, we could appropriately paraphrase it as, Dear Father. He goes on to say, For Christians, young or old, to address God as daddy is totally inappropriate. For in English usage, the term is too casual and flippant and assuming to be used in addressing the Lord God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of all things. Not to mention the fact that daddy is often abbreviated to dad. Hey, dad, what's dad doing? Oh, I got to go help dad. And, and, of course, depending on where you come from in your life and how you relate to your dad, this is going to play, there's going to be a, a component that plays into it. But here's what I know for a fact. I don't believe if you say, if you're praying and you say, oh, Daddy, if you're, if, you're in, if you're just having one of those times and, you're, and you want him to come so close. But I think we've got to be really careful about Getting a little too chummy with God. Reverential love. He is Father. It may be that an improper sense of familiarity with God on the part of some Christians prompted Peter to say, and here's what he said in 1 Peter 1.17, If you address as Father the one who judges each person's work impartially, Live in reverent fear of him during the time of your exile here on earth. So what he's saying is, if you address his father, the one who judges you, live in reverent fear. He is dear father. When Jesus prayed, he used, oh, father. Dear father. Also, there's a, there is a, and I didn't put this in the notes, but in the Greek, it says, Abba, and then pater, behind it. Pater is the word for father. So, while this is a very endearing term, it qualified by father. Every single time it does that, if it uses Abba, the few occasions, it's followed by father. Pater is the word for father. There is a well-known Greek uh, word for daddy. That would be more akin to what we would. And it's called papas. Papas. It's never used. It's always father. So when we pray. And we want 
And, and, and I come to God with that reverence, that desire. I say, oh, oh, my father, my dear father, be near me. I never thought, uh, and, and, and that kind of is, is encapsulating what it means by Abba. That is to address God as our father in heaven is the Lord, in the Lord's prayer is to remember he is the all-knowing and impartial supreme judge of every person who therefore must approach him with reverential awe, not as though he were simply another commonplace daddy. Some food for thought when you think about that. And the reason I bring it up is simply because it seems to be growing. And I'm not sure people really understand what they're saying. Should understand what we say. Lastly, this is the last slide. This is from Michael Catt, Power of Surrender. Page 250, Jeff. Here's what he writes. One thing I know about revival. It involves a restoration of understanding regarding the holiness of God. In true revival and surrender, people aren't chummy with him anymore. Today's spirituality is too chummy. We've lost the awe, reverence, and respect he demands and deserves. There is no revival among a flippant and casual people. God is not interested in making himself more user-friendly. He is looking for people who understand who they're dealing with. We're talking about the Holy One of Israel, the Lord God Almighty. If we will bow before Him in glory, I doubt we should be chest-bumping and high-fiving on earth. What do we see happening largely in the church today in regards to God? Bringing Him down to a very earthly nature. He is wholly incomprehensible but yet knowable. He is sovereign and just. His ways are past finding out. He holds the whole creation, seen and unseen, in His hand. This is the one that gives you life. This is the one with whom we approach when we come to pray. This is the one who is faithful when we're not. This is the one who seeks us out. So when I come, oh great Father, how can I come with any less? I ask JT to come. Do you know Jesus today? Do you know Christ relationally? When his name is mentioned, is there a warmth in your soul? I don't know how long we have left. None of us do. We had an accident that happened last week that wasn't planned. It just happens. The scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Do you know Christ? Or are you still in that flesh, that, that, that slave nature that can just sin? And hostile towards God. I invite you to come to Christ today. Where you are. Cry out for mercy. Where you are. The Lord be dealing with you. Simply respond. Christian.
if you've gotten a little loose, a little chummy, a little less distinct, distinctive in your walk, maybe you should go to your father who loves you and say, I have really misrepresented. Please forgive me. A few moments, the altar is open, JT plays. Do as the Lord leads.